The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Persistent and Nasty podcast has teamed up with We Edition to offer our listeners 25% off monthly subscription. Head over to We Edition and type in NASTY, all capital letters, 25 at checkout. I have said it before, I will say it again. We Edition really are the future of casting. And also you can make money while being a member on the site. You can um, be a scene partner for people and you can help with accents. You can just generally help each other out. And it's a really important thing for us to do, especially during these times and just a lovely way to have community. Our other offer for our listeners is still with Backstage. Backstage are offering our actors 12 months free subscription. You heard that right, 12 months free if you follow the link in the description box. For casting directors, you can post free castings when you type in Persistent and Nasty at checkout. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? I hope that you're all looking after yourselves, staying well, being kind to yourself and each other. Keep wearing those masks, keep washing those hands. We are so close. I can feel it. Today's episode is with the incredible Amira Al-Shanti. Amira is a Scottish-Palestinian actor and we discuss the, so much actually in this episode. Um, I think the one thing that you will all come away from it with, how vital, important, uh, soul-stirring the arts truly are and how much we need them. Um, I really think that you're all going to be inspired by this incredible um, human being. As always, you can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, and if you want, send us a wee email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. As always, please like, subscribe, review, download the episode. It really, really makes a huge difference. Let's keep our little podcast going. So give us all the reviews and comments if you can. And for those of you, again, who have been supporting us by um, donating to our PayPal, you are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As you all know, we are unfunded and uh, it really it really makes an incredible difference to the work that we are doing behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. Anyway, enough of me rambling on. I suggest, oh, I don't know, maybe a wee fruity drink of some form for today. But if not, always a good cup of tea. As always, sit back, relax and enjoy. I don't know about you, but I'm having such a weird day today. Yeah. Is it just weird energy wise or? Ah, like, yeah. I also think what happened was um, I do um, my gran and my great aunt's shopping 
um, although my grand's in the hospital just now, so I was doing my great aunt shopping and I went out and I didn't, I've got all these crystal bracelets that I usually wear and I had forgot to put them on and I was like, oh. That's it. I was like, my energy is off. I'm not. (laughs) The crystals were not working today. They were not working today. (laughs) Mira Alshanti, welcome to the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. We are so over the moon to have you. So um, why don't, as we like to do, we'll just ask our guests to give us a little potted history about you. um, And yeah, we'll take it from there. That was sure. like older crack, and I really hope that didn't pick up in the mic. Nice. <laughs> We're all getting old, aren't we? Oh, it's, um, it's also lockdown. I'm convinced of it. Do you know it's like lockdown societal wise, but it's also lockdown in your body, and your body just seizing up slowly yeah. but surely. I'm constantly at a screen, and like I when know. you're not used to it, I just I'm desperate for somebody to just crack my neck. Oh. That would feel so good right now. Oh, right. So good. Oh <laughs> anyway, enough of my neck. Yes. Let's talk about you, Amina. <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, I am Palestinian, um, but born in Scotland. Palestinian Muslim, I should say. Um, and yeah, I'm an actor, singer, actor, play piano. Is there a piano here? <laughs> Love the piano um, in the background. Just casually, yeah. I play the piano. I mean, I'm not as good as what I used to be pre-lockdown because I'm not, you know, like practicing or performing or anything but it's here it's proof it's more proof for me than to anyone else and that's all that matters <laughs> um so I've been in the industry for like maybe like a year and a bit now um and I had a really non-traditional route so um great I, I love a non-traditional route I think it's so yeah I mean, continue on, but I just think there's something no. so fascinating about it. And yeah, um, I think it brings something f- much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, at the end of the day, you know, acting is telling people stories, right? And people are not homogenous um, and stories are all different. So you're going to need people from various backgrounds and various routes into it. So exactly. Um, yeah, so I um, I grew up as a carer, um, so I didn't really have the same opportunities as everyone else to like, you know, go to like drama youth clubs and stuff. I think I did like maybe like one year of a drama club um, through the Young Carers Network um, when I was a teenager, but that was like the only opportunity. But I was always singing and putting on concerts in my garden for my parents and my best friends and um you know, I, I'm not a dancer, but I used to pretend I was a dancer and just all these things. My mom used to like dress me up in big poofy dresses and I'd have like the underskirt and I used to think that I was a ballerina, like all those kind of stuff. So I'm sure in another lifetime, I would have been a total stage kid. Um, but that just wasn't, that wasn't in the plan for me. And actually, I, you know, I, I don't present that at all. Um, and I, yeah, I started singing like kind of publicly at school um, and had like no experience and I was up with my peers who like you know again had like all of these opportunities and I was just there like oh, I like singing I don't really know what I'm doing I've never had any training like it was just really fun and it was like a big emotional release for me as a mm. kid like just having all that kind of stress and um, anxiety inside of me it was nice to have that kind of release so I think that's where I probably got a lot of the connection from it and one of my sisters who's got disabilities um 
she needs to listen to music every day. That's been her whole life for like the last 30 years. And so it's been my life as well. So it's kind of been something that, you know, I can't go around my flat without having music on. So um, again, it's maybe just a bit more kind of emotional depth behind it. Um, so when I went to uni, I moved out and that was kind of my first kind of taste of just having a bit more agency and a bit more independence. Um, and what happened was that in my advanced higher music exam at school, um, my examiner kind of stopped the exam halfway through. So I, I was doing piano <laughs> and I was doing singing and um, he just kind of stopped in the middle and he was like, what are you doing with your life? And I was just like, um, wow, that's a private question. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm going to uni and I was, I was studying another subject and and he was just kind of like, well, you, you should be doing music. And I was just kind of like, oh, and it was, you know, it was the first time anyone had actually like said that to me and actually mm-hmm. believed in me. I always kind of felt a bit like not as competent as my peers. Like, for example, I auditioned for the piano, for piano lessons at my school in my, in my first or second year, of, I think it was first year of high school. And I got rejected. I was the only one that got rejected from it. And so like, I had all of this, like, I know I had all of this, like, love and passion for it but I just I didn't have the skills I, I was you know my parents aren't musicians I didn't grow up with any musicians like around me and mm. um, so you know like I didn't have the vocabulary or the understanding and that was why I was rejected when ironically my, by the time I got to my advanced higher kind of course um the teacher at the time had kind of said to my dad yeah there's no way that she's going to get an A she'll be lucky if she passes and I got to my exam point and the examiner was like stop what are you doing why are you not doing music sort of thing um he was lovely he was such a lovely man he was called Malcolm and he was just the most loveliest man and he said right where are you going and turns out that I was going to the same city as him like where he stays and he invited me to go and um perform in his amateur society um so I decided okay why not and I had no idea at the time what I was going into at all Um, and I did really well. I got full marks on my piano and I got like 29 out of 30 for my singing exam. And, do you know, all of these things, like I always think back to that moment. It was just so life changing and I had no idea. Like, yeah, it was so it was so strange to have someone like so like value me so much, you know. And so I managed to get my A. I got an, an award and stuff. So it was lovely to, to have that kind of recognition. Also- brilliant I get it right up here to the teacher that it's like she's gonna be lucky if she passes I know my dad actually said that to me and bless him he was a lovely man and very like you know he was actually very supportive and um very proud but I think he, he was probably used to having like musicians that had you know started studying like way before even in primary school like I I auditioned for like getting I think it was cello lessons and I got rejected again and ironically I was the only person in the piano group um, that ended up keeping the piano up. Um, cello, the person that did the cello in my primary school class never kept it up. Mm. But here was me who was getting rejected. I really wanted to do it. So I just feel kind of like now in my adult life, I always kind of advocate for people that actually are interested. It's not about ability. It's about people that, you know, are really, really invested in it. Um, so I went to my university and I got involved with the amateur kind of societies all over the city and um, I just fell in love with it and 
started getting singing lessons and my singing teacher was just so supportive as well and was just kind of like what are you doing with your life you should be pursuing this professionally and again it was kind of like that oh my goodness why are people saying this to me um so yeah so I just I started working hard with her and I started auditioning um I auditioned twice for master musical theater courses um and didn't get in either time and I just thought you know what I really want to do this so I'm just gonna work my butt off and from that point I literally was doing like five or six amateur shows a year I was in workshops um I was like you know, paying, I don't have any life savings. And the reason why I don't have life savings is because I spent all my money on singing lessons, dance lessons, like trying to catch up with people that were my age who had had those lessons, like from when they were like three. Mm. And here I was starting out in my early twenties. Um, and then I finally got, um, so I kind of auditioned two years in a row and then I took some time out, just thought I would get some experience and worked kind of um, different kind of singer jobs at the time. And I finally got um, into a couple of music, musical theatre courses, got awarded like uh, a scholarship and stuff, but I couldn't afford it um, because there wasn't really any funding for Scottish students going down to London. And um, uh, again, I had like a master's already. So like there were kind of people saying that, well, the system is if you have like a, a degree that's higher level than the degree you're applying for, you have to pay for it. So it's all of these kind of barriers in a sense. And I feel like every time I've tried to pursue this, there's always been something else that's been there and it's not really considered me as a person. Um, so unfortunately, I, I said no to the schools that got um, that I was given places to. Um, and one of the schools who'd given me like £10,000 were like, are, are you sure? And I was like, well, yes, because I need to find £20,000 on top of that to afford going to your school and living in London. Um, and again, you know, it's a systemic problem, isn't it? That only, you know, people with inherit like access to like money from their family or whatever, they get, you know, the kind of priority. And then the people that have worked really, really hard that can't afford it don't really get in. So um, I had, I was having a really rough kind of summer thinking about what am I going to do? I've gotten into these two amazing, really well-reputed schools. I've got scholarships and things, and I, I can't say yes. What do I do? And um, I sang at a, a cabaret uh, where um, a mutual friend, kind of um, someone who was friends with my friend um, who works in the industry, was like, okay, how's your drama school stuff going? And I was like, not great. I can't afford it. I don't really know what to do. And she ended up putting me up for Prince of Egypt. That was opening up in the West End at the time. And I managed to get into the room and do an audition. And I was so nervous. Mm-hmm. It was my first professional MT audition. And I was just like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? Um, I was so starstruck. And um, I, didn't, I didn't get anything. But it was just another sign that made me think, OK, I, I can't give this up just yet. And then I was in a show that summer at the Fringe and the women that works in the industry sent a colleague along to see me in the show. And then they signed me and they were just like, you know what, let's do this. Let's just try this out. Um, So that's kind of been my route, actually, which is so long winded. But it's just been the the craziest, wildest journey. I've loved it. Every second of it has been amazing. Um, It's definitely not long winded. It's really um, it's it's. uh, actually so important loads of the things that you mentioned you know you talked about um 
like when you talked about that examiner saying to you what are you doing um, with your life I don't know if you've read the book um, The Five People That You Meet In Heaven but that's literally made me think about that it's like this person going through the he's had this character in the book has had an impact on these five people that he doesn't know yeah yeah I know and it's just how you then change some how you can change absolutely. someone's life absolutely um, and Malcolm he unfortunately he passed away a few years ago and he was amazing like there was one point in my life where I mean every every singer goes through this where they they can't sing like I think I was going through a lot of I was going through counseling I was processing some trauma and funnily it seems to be a phenomena that when you go through counseling you can lose your voice from the trauma of suppressing it for so long and I couldn't sing I would try and sing and nothing would come out and um, I posted this like status on so- on social media and Malcolm got in touch and he was like, I'll always remember that moment in the room. Like it'll come back to you. Don't force it. And it was so lovely. And unfortunately, he passed away a few like maybe a few months later. And it will always stick with me that that was like the last, you know, correspondence that we had yeah. with each other. He was just incredible. And I don't think he ever like I never really got the chance to tell him properly. Like, look at where I am now, because you believed in this like little girl who you know, she didn't have any confidence in herself whatsoever. It was just, yeah, he's, I agree. He, he definitely sounds like that protagonist in the novel. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, you talk about the funding situation and um, it, that comment about those that can afford it and those that come from, and it is, it's such, the industry is in a really dangerous position of becoming basically it's just the elite that can afford to do it and it's like that's not the stories that w- w- we should be telling because it should be everybody's stories yeah like yeah. you said at the start it's about being a storyteller and it shouldn't just be one type of story that we're hearing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely and I think you know as the industry starts to kind of finally learn about how important representation is we have to take into account that if you're going to include minorities, whether it's race, sexuality, disability, historically and systemically, a lot of those populations are from populations that don't have access to that kind of money. So we need to hold people that are at the top accountable to make yeah, those yeah. gateways open for everyone. It can't just be kind of lip service. It doesn't work like that. And I was really lucky that I met my agent at the right time in the right place. If I hadn't met her, I, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now. And I only had access to that because, you know, I, I literally worked so hard. To like, I think I had like weekly singing lessons for maybe about 10 years straight. I was working so, so hard. Um, and I was fortunate enough to live at home and not have to, you know, pay rent. I mean, it's a different story now because I've moved out, but um, other people don't have that. So how do we how do we get them into the industry? Exactly, like it's the the whole thing is the, the support system isn't there, and mm-hmm. there is a real there's also a real snobbery as well from higher up and the gatekeepers um, at the top, and that doesn't just include you know theatre companies and production companies. That includes agencies as well yeah. and casting directors to a point. I think there are some. Um, not all because there's some amazing open-minded um really um a just brilliant casting directors out there but there are some definitely ones that are still very much stuck in I thought of if you didn't go to drama school and you didn't go to a certain drama school Mm -hmm. then I don't really have time to even 
have you register yeah for sure and there's you know there's so many other things like our industries it's oversaturated there's more of us than there is work that's always been the case and it's becoming even more the case now with the lack of funding and I think it's also something that in a society it's you know our governments tend not to prioritize the arts I know which I mean I've said it like so many times I feel like I've said it numerous times in life and on this podcast since you know Covid happened last year. Like, what did people do first of all? Like, the first things that they do was watch Netflix, listen to music, read a book, mm-hmm. go online. Like, this is the other thing that I think people forget. You know, websites are graphic designers. They are exactly. designers. It's art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that's got people through lockdown is to do with the arts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just you talking earlier about your sister and, you know, having music every day. I'm the same. Like, there's something so vital in having music every day in your life. It's just... And also, you talk, you hit something when you talked about that release as well when you sing. Mm-hmm. And that vocal thing. I'm always wondering what that is. I wonder if it's, like, a primordial thing that's in us that it's, like... Because we can't scream at the moon anymore. <laughs> so just... <laughs> I mean, I still do. I mean, I do too, but I mean, most other people don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although maybe there's lots more that are and I just don't know about them, but yeah. There's lots of evidence that kind of shows that singing kind of, you know, uh, it really impacts your body and your mood and things. And like, I I do agree, there's something that um, is there as an emotional release, but it's amazing that, I mean, if you look back in history, like you see, like, again, people with a lot of money, they use art for recreation. They employ people like, you know, to to entertain them. But when it comes to people's livelihoods, they're not interested in that. And I think there's a real classism about that, you know, because now, um, you know, there are people out there, even things like when theatres on TV or um, like the there was a, a recent thing. I don't watch TV very often, but there was a recent thing where they were, again, standard um, casting really big names um, who have had multiple job opportunities during the COVID experience. And you've got artists that are struggling to even pay rent. Um, who have had nothing, no work in over a year. And again, it's that kind of elitism. It's that kind of bias that will just go for like the top because that's what engages our audiences. When actually what engages our audiences are stories that they can relate to, not these big names that, you know, like they are skilled in their own way, but there's a lot of other people that are skilled too that have just as much impact, I think. Absolutely. I actually think something I think there is a blindness when it comes to that because actually somebody who isn't known quote unquote can bring something so much more mm-hmm. because they have more freedom than somebody who is known in that sense of they can yeah. really push um their performance in a way that maybe somebody who is known and has got put in a box. Yeah. They're the people round about them might be saying mm, no don't push it too much but um 
yeah it's so fascinating um I'm really excited like that just with everything that you talk about and just your love for the craft is really infectious it's really really beautiful Amira like really beautiful um and but I would love to if you are okay like talk about do you think being a carer um, from a young age has had an impact on how you see the industry and how you navigate your your way through it yeah for sure so I, I mean I think it's very prevalent in people that grow up grew up as carers especially that your like empathy levels are beyond what is kind of normal and I think in the strangest sense me coming to the industry a little bit later on uh, was necessary because I, I have a tendency to always prioritize the other person and only now that I'm older, having gone through my own kind of therapeutic path, I'm learning that actually my needs are just as valid. Mm-hmm. So if I was to go straight out of school into a drama school, 18 years old, I would have, I think I would have really struggled with the pressure and the competitiveness, um, of the industry whereas now I'm able to take a step back and you know assert my needs but also acknowledge other people I think that there is a reputation for things to get really vicious and I don't think that's necessary like we're all just trying to find our way we're all just trying to make a living and we're all trying to tell you know like our own stories and I think that's so valuable everyone has a legitimate place here and I don't think I would have had that insight had I not been a carer Um, I also think just, you know, as you said, people don't tend to value artists when actually my family, we would not have survived without art. You know, my sister, she has such limited abilities. The only thing that she can really connect to that gives her the input, the sensory input that she needs and the enjoyment she needs is music. And so we owe like so much to the musicians, to the entertainers, to the singers, um, the arrangers, the composers for creating music that soothes her and engages her and gives her that, like, you know, that satisfaction in life that makes her want to get up and get excited and listen to a CD again and again and again. Um, I can I can stand there and say, look, this is important. You know, you, you talk about your own kind of perceptions of things. Well, let's talk about people that really, really need music to survive. Um, I think even in, um, I don't know if you've heard of this, but in some circles, in, in Islamic circles, there are some people that say mus- um, music is um, sinful and it should be banned, which is really bizarre, really mm-hmm. strange, because if you look at someone with a disability who literally they can't do anything, you know, they don't have any sort of intention or ill wills, they don't harm anyone, they just exist. And for someone like my sister, music is a lifeline for her. How could it be sinful if it's giving her that much joy? And she's, you know, a completely pure person, if you look at it from a sort of religious perspective. I think there's a lot of judgment um, and it's unnecessary. So yeah, absolutely. I think kind of being a carer gives you so much insight. Um, I feel like I'm really understanding of people as well. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of that kind of kind of like compassionate nature. But I think over time I've learned to be a bit more guarded because there are people that will take advantage of that. And it, it's not a healthy thing. Yeah, you need to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. As you said. And yeah, 
um, and also remember what your needs are as well as you said yeah and that's it's really fascinating just you know talking about arts like us having that conversation that artists aren't really um valued and then you mention in, in certain circles um about it, music being sinful and I wonder like if you know there's so much steeped in the patriarchy as yeah. well like just that whole thing of that how people class artists and what their thoughts are if it comes back to like if we go back all those thousands of years and it's right ingrained in those moments within in various religions and various different in places in the world where certain things were seen as valid and others were and, and we're still carrying that yeah yeah it's bizarre and I do think again I'm talking from a privileged perspective you know like I I went to university I learned the skill of critical analysis I learned the skill to be able to think for myself and think about you know, like really analyze something and think, okay, is this real? Is this not real? Do I agree with it? What are the what are the things that, you know, support that? And what are the things that maybe don't support that? A lot of people, I guess, you know, don't have those skills or they just listen to something and they follow it without thinking. And I think you're right. There is something about, like, I am very openly Muslim. I love my religion so much. But there is something really um, male dominant about it. And that's not because Islam is a misogynistic religion. It's not. Otherwise, you wouldn't have women following it and supporting it. We're not stupid. You know, we have our own minds and we advocate for our own lives. It's the people that profit off of that religion, profit off of the marginalization of minorities and the oppression of them that then enforce these rules because they're threatened by those that, by those minorities so that keeps it kind of going. And then you've got people that don't seem to acknowledge that. And I think that's where it comes from. And like you said, it's not just Islam. There's loads of, you know, cultures and religions that have those viewpoints. And it is that kind of sense of people not really questioning it and thinking about it rationally. Um, I'll always remember um, someone um, coming to our family home and saying, like, why does Amira like music so much? It's really sinful. And I was so upset about it. And my dad sat me down. And he was like, look at it. Look at look at your sister. <laughs> look at how much how happy she is. How can that be wrong? Like, how can anything that makes someone happy and feel valued and loved be 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 a sinful thing? It doesn't work like that. Um, so I, I do think it is there's there's a lot that is practiced in religion and that's preached in religion that I don't think reflects the true values of religion. Religion is all about morals, right? And how to live your life morally. It's not moral to, to say yes and no to things that don't suit you, but suit other people. Yeah. Yeah. You need to say that out loud. I'm like, yes. Just taking a little moment. <laughs> absolutely because as you were talking there and you're you know and as as we both said it's not just islam like christianity has been calling actresses whores for hundreds thousands of years like you yeah. know the idea of i mean even at the start of like the turn of the uh, 1900s a female deciding to be an actress was a really massive thing yeah. like that is it's really i used to work in when I was younger, 
when I was uh, training, I worked in a nursing home and there was uh, an elderly lady, very privileged background, like um, her dad had been really high up in the British government and he they'd been out in India, you know, colonial, you know, doing their yeah. stuff. And um, she was v- from a very rich family and she told me one day when she was 17, she decided... Um, that she wanted to be an actress and she just got on a boat and left India and was like and came back to Britain and was like I'm going to be an actress and it was just like she decided and she went and met all these fabulous people again because she could but when her parents found out that that's what she'd come back to England to do they cut her off and she was stunned because they said being on the stage was sinful and that to me is so bizarre. And it might be that, you know, again, you have to think about all of these biases and all of this discrimination. It's not the individual, it's a system, right? We grow up in a system that influences the way we think about things, whether it's race or whether it's like being on the stage. I guess back in that time, that's what they would have thought. But actually, it's not that. And we know that now. Um, there are so many stories out there, you know, that tell really legitimate, important issues um, I don't know whether you've seen The Present on Netflix, but that is such a powerful um, piece of art and it shows Palestinian life in Palestine and the reality of the checkpoints. And it's done so well. It's on Netflix and it's been nominated for something um, in the Oscars, which is unheard of in Palestinian cinema. Unheard of. You would never see a Palestinian film do so well. That's not a whorish thing and even if something is sexual why are you why are you cutting your own daughter off it's her choice you know and of course we have to question you know the element of sexualization where it comes from what what are the um implications of that and and what are the um purposes of it but ultimately it's free choice and it's an informed decision and if it's your daughter it's your daughter (laughs) You know, you, you raise this woman like you, it's a well, to me, it's a moral duty to look after your children. But then again, I'm coming from my own biases with that, aren't I? So. And you're right, because we've all got our biases, don't we? We've all got them and they're all some of them are they're they're some of them are systemic. And, you know, we have to unpick that and. It takes work. And not everybody wants to do the work. No. And that, again, in the same point as I say that, like my whole being is like, why don't you want to do the fucking work? Do the work. No. But then that again, as you've just said, that's about like, that's me being, that's me putting my stuff on someone else because yeah. I don't know what is going What's on. What's going on. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the ultimate problem with everything is that we are so judgmental as an animal kind of group we are the judgiest people well I mean animals (laughs) um and we have to park that we have to realize that people have values some of those values clash the ultimate thing that we should um challenge is if someone is being harmed and hurt if that's happening then we have to stop what we're doing and change it um but you know things like I used to be a massive political activist when I was younger so big and I used to get really frustrated at people who you know, didn't really do very much. And now, you know, like I'm a bit older, 
I've got to make a living, otherwise I lose my beautiful flat. Um, I can't put food on the table for myself. I can't go out and protest every day. <laughs> I can't sit on social media and campaign every day. It's, it's not the same. It's still important to me. But I th- whether my 19-year-old self would have realized that is a different story because she was living in her own bubble with it. So, yeah, it's about, I, I guess, we, we have to challenge things in our own way, in our own capacity as well. Yeah, and also campaigning for whatever it is, is exhausting. Like, so tiring. So tiring. I mean, yeah. Um, and it's, I can't imagine when it's, I mean, I probably, I was probably always interested in politics, but again, I didn't really get very political till I was maybe early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just recently, just like being on social media and it's so funny and you say, you know, I need to have my job and everything. And there's so much connected with our industry and politics as well. Mm-hmm. We kind of bleed in and out with each other. And, yeah. you know, the majority of performers that I know, I would say are pretty left wing. Yeah. But there are definitely some out there that are not. Yep. And they've just been really smart and kept their mouth closed while those of us that are left wing are out burning everything to the ground or attempting to burn it to the ground and then kind of going oh I've not had a job in a little while (laughs) and again the reason why for that is probably because traditionally our employers would have been more affluent and probably a bit more centre to right wing politics probably more right wing um it is that, again, it's that, can we sacrifice what we do for the greater purpose? And for some of us, yes. You know, I would never, ever do, I would never, I draw the line at anything that is bigoted, I can't. I was up for a job recently that called out for Palestinians and I was I was so close to getting it. And I felt so uncomfortable because it was so problematic in so many ways. And I pulled out of it and it would have been like the biggest break in my career but I just couldn't do it. it. It just didn't, it didn't paint Palestinians in a good light at all. And I think I couldn't live with myself if I went through with that. And I'm okay with that decision. I'm fine with that decision. And I know that life carries on, you know, other things will happen. Um, but for some people, they're okay with just kind of being silent and just doing what they need to do to get the work. Um, and yeah, that is a problem, but it's up to what we feel is most important to us personally, I guess. I think it's really great that you mentioned that because, I mean, n- nowhere near as uh, as important as that. I remember years ago uh, being asked to go up for an audition for a commercial and it was for like one of these um, debt companies, like, you know, payday loan things. And I just said to my agent, I'm not doing it because... I don't agree with that. I it's 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 a, a tactic to keep those in poverty in poverty. And I was like, and I'm just not willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time the agent that I was with, they were like, Elaine, it's a five grand advert. And I was like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll continue to be poor. I'll be all right. I mean, yeah, no. I mean, and I'm not like I'm super lucky. I always manage to find work, and I have teaching work, and you know, mm-hmm. now I have um, my husband, and 
He supports me, thank God. <laughs> I got you yeah. bills. <laughs> <laughs> she says on a feminist podcast, you all know what I mean. Um, <laughs> um, but just, yeah, like that kind of conversation about put, doing what's right for you. Yeah. And this industry is so good at making you forget that because it's all about where you've got to get to. Yeah, exactly. And I just feel like, again, had I gone into it a bit earlier on, I probably would have taken any job and I wouldn't have really thought about it. But coming at it a bit older, you know, I was sitting and I was talking about it with my friends and it was a lot of pressure because these are really big names. Like these were, and it was a really, you know, big opportunity and everyone was like, oh, my God, what are you going to do? And I just thought, how would I feel if my family or uh, anyone of my race came to see this? I would feel so ashamed of myself. Um, and I've spoken about it recently with another Palestinian actor who actually, unfortunately, ended up doing something that was problematic. And she did it because she was um, unsure at the time of what to do. And she thought maybe she could change it. She could change the process and, you know, all of those kind of really hopeful tactics that we think about. And her mum came to see it and voiced how ashamed she was of her. And her mum's not Palestinian, but she said she spoke about that being like a real turning point in her career of like, oh, my God, what did I do? Like, I did it because I thought it was a job and that it would advance my career. But actually, what was that message all about? It was so twisted and... um. You know, I think, and I, I really admire her for being able to talk about it openly. And um, I think it's important for us as we talk about changing biases, raising awareness, we all fuck up. Yes. <laughs> we all make mistakes. We're all from the same system, right? Scotland is no, not perfect. And we've all grown up with problematic issues that come out in different ways, whether it's conscious or unconscious that's okay. It's not about us being perfect. Like I remember once I spoke about cultural appropriation and someone said to me, ah, but did you not go to an Asian wedding and wear a sari once? And the couple weren't Asian. And I said, oh, it was an engagement party. And I said, yeah, I fucked up. I didn't know. I fucked up, but I own it now. And I say, yeah, I did that. It's really problematic. I'm not going to do it again. Um, that's the whole point of challenging these systems it's not about saying you can't talk openly about these things because you've done something wrong before that it doesn't work like that it's a process that we all go through um and I think again like in the industry we have to think about that we have to hold our hands up and say oh yeah this isn't right um and not kind of get personal with each other I don't think that's helpful you're so right it's not helpful and I think cancel culture and social media have got so much to do with that um because actually for me those kind of things of if somebody continues to do those things that's a different thing yeah you can make a mistake we're human we're gonna make mistakes you can apologize great but you can hold people accountable if they do it again if you've raised something with them and they do it again that is the issue that is the problem that you have to hold them to. Not when they make a mistake. You know, you would never say to someone, like imagine being a child in primary school and 
you accidentally take someone's pen and your peer starts crying and you say, oh, I'm so sorry, here's a pen back. You would never punish the child for doing that. You would be like, okay, great, move on. Don't do it again, that's okay. You would never say, no, that's you. Out, bye, see you later. It doesn't work like that. It does, exactly. And we're so, um, we're so unforgiving. Yeah. And there are some people who's, who maybe aren't at the point where they deserve forgiveness yet and they've got, they've got to sort out their stuff. And that's okay. But there are people who, as you say, make a mistake. Somebody calls them on it. And I think when, if you get called on a mistake and you're like, I am so sorry, I didn't realise, I totally take that on board. You know, I always think of like, you know, when... Um, and white people do it a lot. Like we do, we're, we'll go on the offensive straight away. Just shut the fuck up and listen. Just listen. And then I've noticed it a lot the last few weeks, like especially after the Sarah Everett thing and with the police and everything and lots of, and a whole other thing about men and men going, it's not all men. And we're like, we know it's not all men. We know that. No, nobody said it is. Like that's not the, it's not the point, but it's like, all of these white women are really upset and angry about it. And I'm a bit like, right, okay, so where is your upset and anger for our minorities? Where is your upset and anger for our Palestinian sisters, our black sisters, um, our Indian sisters? Where is your, our Southeast Asian sisters? Where is your anger for them? Because at the moment I'm not seeing it, but we've got privilege straight away because of the colour of our skin. And I think there is this real, and again, like thinking about my own experience as an Arab woman, as a Muslim woman, as a Palestinian woman, as a, you know someone with people in my family who have disabilities, we are innately like in our own bubble and we don't tend to think about someone outside of our group or social group or our identity or whatever. Um, and that you know it might not be a natural thing but we have to train ourselves to do that because you know I get very frustrated with some political movements and some people that I know some people I don't know that talk out about one issue and don't talk about something else if you talk about equality for one minority you have to include every single minority with that whether that's intersexual feminism whether that's racism whatever it is you have to so, for example, in the Arab world, there's a massive anti-black attitude and system. There's slavery still happening in some countries. And it's like you can't talk about racism to you when your society is doing that to black people. Or, you know, um, people talking about anti-Semitism. Well, actually, Semites are Western Arabs, which include Palestinians. So where's your voice for them as well as Jewish people? You know, it's like almost like, or, you know, like the, the LGBTQ movement, you know, that's got such a great voice, justly so. But where are those allies when it comes to disability issues? Where are those allies when it comes to racial issues? And that is the whole problem, I think, with our political movement right now is that we're so biased and fixated. And the minute you speak to, for example, thinking about it as someone who's not white when you speak to a white person you say that's not okay it's so frustrating to hear eh, what what are you talking about and then they lay it back on you it's so frustrating and I think 
that defense they just gaslit you. That's li- they've literally just gaslit you. Exactly, and that defensiveness then causes the issue. Um, when you raise something that's maybe racist for someone, and they like, I've I've had it before where I've raised something and I've said this isn't right. I was ostracized. I couldn't even walk down my local high street without having dirty looks. And I couldn't even, I asked so many times to speak to the people and just say, let's have an open conversation about this. And I got nothing. And when I sent an email, they went, yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And I was just like, whoa, like, what is this? And at the time, you know, I don't think I had the articulation or the vocabulary to understand what was going on. Whereas now having done more reading, I'm like, wow, that was white defensiveness right there. They weren't ready for that conversation. I don't know if they ever will be. But the way that they treated me was just that pure, like, we are good people. How dare you? Like, and I'm I'm not saying that you're bad people. I'm just saying, let's talk about this. Maybe I've made a mistake somewhere. Absolutely. But let's try and clear the issue and come to a good point in it. Um, and this kind of idea of tokenism, well, we've got this, we've got this sorted. So that means that we're good. That's not the case. It's not about that. It's not about being a good or a bad person. It's about you know, changing things and moving things along. Amira needs to be on everything, talking to everybody <laughs> about everything. Ramble too much, Elaine. It's so bad. <laughs> no, you absolutely do not. I'm like, keep going, babes, keep going. Um, everything you've just said is so brilliant and true and clear and it's it's also really struck me as you were talking you know Scotland has this attitude where it thinks that it's you know we're so much better than other countries like we're so inclusive we're so not and we have so much work to do can we just all start there like you know I'm still kind of not to take it down into like murky territory but you know I'm I'm raging and laughing at the irony of the thing of you know a few weeks ago there was stuff happened in George Square and uh, but six months before that they were all out there standing protecting statues but then you've gone and broken memorial benches and that like the thing about and I said I remember saying to Steve at the time I was like I don't know why that really upsets me about the memorial bench and I think it's because all of us have lost someone and if we haven't we will lose someone in our life and wherever you place that place to go and visit them whether that be you know a bench looking over the sea or um, a grave or a plaque somewhere they're so personal to you and I just remember I was like all right okay so you all went and stood and watched some statues some brass statues because I don't know what anybody was going to do with them but then you've destroyed benches I don't how can they not see that <laughs> I, know, I know and it's that kind of um, I was always taught and I'm so grateful for my parents honestly they are the most amazing people I don't know anyone that would dead like you know sacrifice their lives and dedicate being lifelong carers and dealing with being refugees and discrimination and just carrying on it's amazing anyway um they always taught me to not like to fear the person that boasts and that's proud and that's not confidence it's not fearing people that are confident and like you know celebrating their success it's the people that are too proud to acknowledge when they've done something wrong 
that is like that is like my motto in life. If someone's stinking of arrogance, I'm not interested. I don't have any time of day for it at all. Time of day, I guess. Um, I think there's something really hypo- We are very um, tuned into being hypocrites in Scotland, I think. And I love Scotland, but I also suffered a lot living, being born here and living here. Um, the two can exist. The love for Scotland can exist. The love for being Scottish can exist alongside the what on earth is wrong with this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when it comes to things like memorial benches versus statues, there's something about almost like switching off and just letting that mob mob um mentality yeah Yeah. come in and not even thinking about what actually that means to someone I think also there's something in our system that protects certain groups the authoritarian systems that protect certain groups whereas if there were other groups that did that it would be a scandal Mm -hmm. um and we have to think about those systems as well that that perpetuate these problems um the whole problem with Scotland is that we don't own up. We don't own up when we've made mistakes. Um, and that's on a cultural um, level, I would say. Um, Scottish people are really warm and friendly. Of course we are, but we're too proud for our own good, I think. It's it's so ingrained and there's so many things. And... Um, there definitely is there's a weird dichotomy I think about Scotland you know um the sense of always being the underdog within the union actually at one point in the history of the union we were we were the richest part of the union and or we're certainly one of the richest um parts of the union so there's this like weird dichotomy of being the underdog but also being super powerful and it's I don't think we've ever managed to process and navigate how that has then played into the rest of our society and our culture because most of the time as a Scot and being a Scot in the uh, entertainment industry you do feel like the underdog a lot of the time you're like you know we go to auditions like you know and Scottish people will be they'll maybe be two three at the most everybody else is English and you're a bit like oh and it's that in itself of like you know that's an experience of being minority in a space so how can we not transfer that to how that feels to be a minority in our society I think that um we are very much in survival mode you know when it comes to Scottish identity we're here and we're able to talk about it um but we forget that Scotland is accountable too you know, we were colonisers. We took part of the slave trade. I'm not Absolutely. saying we did suffer. You've got the Highland clearances and, you know, even like things that are happening now that are just not fair. Um, but we have that. We have that in our system. We have that slave trade. It is in our system still to this day. It's still in our culture. It's not going to go away. Yeah. And it's not going to go away if we don't sit and think about what we're doing. And I would say that that needs to start from when you were a child and you were going to school. Yep. 
that's not going to change. You know, we are fortunate enough that some adults will sit down and think, hmm, okay, we've got some work to do. Not everyone has that skill and not everyone has that time to sit down and read articles and watch documentaries. But children, if we change the education system and we make them think about, okay, how do we question these things? How do we know when we've harmed someone? How do we stop that? That's where the change is going to come from. Yeah. It's so true. And also we need to... Because I think there's this thing tied up in when you acknowledge the past of your country or your culture. Some people somehow have turned it into, but it's not me. Yeah. No, nobody's saying it is you. Nobody's saying that. But I think for any for us to be able to move on, we have to accept that responsibility of change and the, and the of going. That's really awful, and I really hate that part of my country's history, and I'm disappointed and disgusted by it. And I apologize on their behalf, even though you know it wasn't it's not my fault, quote unquote. It's my fault if I don't break those things. That's my fault. We need to break this idea that it's all down to the individual. It's not. We need to break the society. It's we are a product of the society that we were brought up in. That is the, the point of it all. And until people understand that, we're not gonna get anywhere. Yeah. There's no such thing as a good or bad person. I truly believe that. I believe that there are decision maker decision making processes that influence the way that we make decisions. Mm-hmm. And part of them are those kind of things that are instilled in us within the systems that we live in and we grow up in. Yeah. Absolutely. Um I just, yeah, I mean, you touched on the fact that your mum and dad were refugees as well. And I, I would love to talk more about that, but I'm also realising the time and I'm like, <laughs> like, keep talking to me. I can talk for ages. <laughs> like, that's, that's huge. Like, your mum and dad um, are refugees and that you, the daughter of a refugee, love the country that you came from but also are so articulate in your own experience of it. And I think it's extraordinarily important. And, you know, using your art and your music is such a powerful way to showcase that. That's not the right word. To express it. Thank you. Wednesday night and Elaine's brain has just gone... No, but we have to to model art in its truth form is um, the tool of the oppressed. It's a way for us to revolt. Um, Technically, every Palestinian is a refugee. Every Palestinian. We don't have the, some of us don't have the refugee status from the UN because of politics, but we are not allowed to go back to our country. We are not allowed. And so, I class myself as a refugee too. I was born here, but I can't go back. You know, the, the most bizarre experience of my life is going back to my, my, my home country and having my dad's directions of his house, his school, the hospital my mum was born in, in his handwriting. And I was walking about Jerusalem trying to figure out where to go. I didn't get the opportunity to have my dad come with me and, you know, show me all these things. I had to follow up a handwritten note 
And to me, that that is the essence of being a refugee. I was able to go because I have a British passport. You know, I have that privilege. My dad has that privilege, but he's he can't go because of the trauma of all. Um, but I will absolutely, in every you know point in my soul, the the reason why I'm in this industry, I want to tell my story. People don't want to listen to Palestinians. They don't want to acknowledge the situation. We have some people that are starting to open up their ears, but it's you know, like I said, the the present on Netflix, even in, we have like, um, my friends and I have an Arab film group. And even in that, some um, Arab actors were like, or some Arabs that are invested in films were like, oh, I'm not sure. And instantly I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Our voices are so like, we're not listened to at all. People only listen to us when there's white journalists on the TV talking about it. That's it. Um, we have to use every ounce of our bodies to try and get the stories out there and tell people of what's going on. So to me, being in this industry, I hope that one day I can create something that represents the struggle of being a Palestinian. And, you know, I am like um, I'm working on a project just now, but I would like to dedicate my whole life to it because until I can take my parents back, and I, they can actually take me around themselves without having a handwritten note. I'm not going to rest. And even if it happens beyond their lifetime, then at least my children can see it for themselves and they'll have their mom take them, you know? Yeah. Oh, you've got me. Oh. <laughs> That's, uh, Mira's, um, yeah. Um, so it's, I'm lost, I'm at a loss for words, which is unlike me. Um, I have to say, because uh, everything you've said is just so incredibly powerful and you're just such a absolute um, firebrand and I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, usually when we finish off the podcast, we like to ask our guests what persistent and nasty means to them. So a little bit of background, um, if you don't know why we're named persistent and nasty, a uh, Persistent uh, from the Elizabeth Warren quote, nevertheless, she persisted. Nasty reclaiming the word after the ex-president of the United States used it to criticise many women who dared to give him facts. Um, so, yeah. Amira, what does persistent and nasty mean to you? Uh, it means being a Palestinian Muslim and existing in my own identity and not being afraid to talk about the things that are happening. Yay. Thank you so much. What an amazing episode. I, as I said, could continue to talk to you for hours. <laughs> Definitely need to do a part two. When, so let us know when your show is happening, the whatever, and all the stuff that you're working on. Um, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. As always, lovely listeners, until the next time, stay nasty. <laughs>